Amen. Good morning. Uh, in case you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors along with Jonathan here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, we are continuing this morning and throughout the rest of the spring uh, with our, our series through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and this morning we come to chapter 8. And, and I wish, you know, that there was fresh new material for us to go through together. Um, but it's going to begin to feel like uh, we are banging on the same door. That we're just that the Hebrews writer is just repeating himself. He's going back to the same things over and over and over again. Unless that seemed to become routine, I want to say uh, he's taking us back to the gospel yet again this morning because uh, that's where we need to go. Martin Luther. I'm reading a, a, a book that he wrote, and uh, his congregation complained to him, the great reformer. Uh, one time that he all he did was ever preach the gospel. Every week you preach the gospel to us. Why do you preach the gospel to us every week? And he told them, because every week you come into church looking like people who don't believe it. And so I have to take you back to it uh, every week. And that is what the Hebrews writer is doing. And again this morning he's going to take us back to these gospel truths uh, that he's been laboring so diligently uh, to try to get into our hearts and into our imaginations. So let's follow along with him. We're actually going to go back to chapter 7 and read verses 26 through 28 in chapter 7, and then uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 8, and then verses 6 through 13. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, you're welcome to. If you don't, it's okay. It's printed for you in the worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read together from God's Word. Let's read from Hebrews 7. For it was indeed fitting... That we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made a priest forever. Now point in what we are saying, and some of you might breathe a sigh of relief and say, finally, he's getting to the point, right? Verse 1, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second. For he finds fault with them or with it. Depending upon your translation. When he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Now remember, the book of Hebrews is being written to Jewish Christians who are drifting away. Verse 
1 of chapter 2, drifting away from the distinctive theology and practice of Christianity, back, we think, probably back into Judaism, back into a religious... They're drifting away from the gospel and back underneath the law, trying to earn their salvation through their obedience or through religious ritual of some kind. Uh, And so the writer of Hebrews is sounding the warning. He sees this in these people, and he's writing this letter because it concerns him greatly. That's why he's written. You see, verse 1, he's written to exhort them to hold fast to the gospel truths he's been reminding them of. Verse 1, this is the point. We have such a high priest. I mean, this is what he's been talking about for chapters now, that Jesus is our great high priest, this gospel truth that he wants to get sunk down into our hearts. He wants it to come and get massaged into our lives so that it begins to affect the way we live, so that we don't drift. And so he warns these people that he sees that are kind of drifting away back into legalism, back into a religious construct. And he says, and the argument of this passage is just this, that when you do that, if you, if you, if you drift that way, what you're doing is, is you're leaving and trading in the new and the better for the old and inferior. That's what he says. That's his whole argument here. That what, when, when you move away from Christianity, back towards works righteousness, back into a religious striving, back into Judaism, whatever it might be, you're leaving and trading in the new and the better for the old and the inferior. And so he offers three contrasts to get at this in this passage. And they're the three points in the outline that I provided for you. He says, he contrasts the old and the new, the gospel as opposed to religion, in three ways. He says, first, the gospel provides a new and better covenant with a, secondly, new and better promises, established, thirdly, by a new and better mediator. That's the argument. Verse 6. The gospel offers us a new and better covenant, which is established by new and better promises, ratified by a new and better mediator. So those are the three points that we want to look at this morning, okay? So let's just start first with this idea that the gospel provides a new and better covenant. Uh, Hebrews actually introduces the gospel truth of this new covenant in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, when the writer says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I think you talked about that with Jonathan last week. But it's also here in this passage in verse 6, if you look there with me. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. And included the extended quotation from Jeremiah 31, the word covenant is used seven times in this chapter. This chapter is about this idea of a new and better covenant that's coming in Jesus. So what is a covenant? (laughs) Well, immediately there's a problem because there's no English word that is a fitting synonym for the word in the Bible that gets translated covenant. So it's very difficult to define. But one of the things we could say is our culture has this idea that true love and commitment is such that doesn't require or doesn't need to be formalized or ritualized. So you'll often hear secular people, uh, New Yorkers love to talk this way. They say things like, you know, you'll hear a woman saying to a man, I don't need a piece of paper to tell me I love you. Or I don't need a, a piece of paper to tell me that, that, I'm, you know, that I'm married to you. I don't, in other words, this kind of debunking of the institution of marriage. Uh, and so the, the culture really does have this sense that true love and commitment are such that there's no need for, for there to be a formalization of the relationship You know, we kind of look down upon those things. But the Bible goes in the opposite direction of the culture. It says that the more intimate, the more sacred a relationship, the more binding, the more formal, the more legal it should be. 
And so a covenant is a relationship that is completely binding, that's founded on the mutual love and commitment of two parties to one another. But one of the distinguishing characteristics of the idea of covenant in the Bible is that it usually involves some kind of ceremony or ritual involving vows and commitments. And the purpose of the vows and the commitments are to ramp up the sacredness of the relationship that's being established. Now, we have parallels of this, don't we, in our, in our culture? This is what we do when we, when we get, you know, when two people get married. They stand up on the stage in front of people out there, and they dress in formal attire, and there's all this ceremony and pomp and all, you know, and then there's vows, and it's very formal. Now, what's the purpose of that? It's, it's meant to symbolize the seriousness of what's happening when that man and that woman come together as husband and wife. It's a covenant that's being forged. Another, another um, parallel that we might be familiar with is baptism, whether you're, you, you know, believe in baptizing babies or whether you don't. Baptism, you know, in the Christian community has this sense of their vows that are taken. It's a very serious, very solemn, typically the children, you know, if, if it's a child, in other traditions particularly, that you get dressed up, everybody looks really fancy, there's lots of formality involved in it, okay, because it's, it's this idea of a covenant ceremony that's happening, or membership. When people join our church in membership, they take membership vows. Because we see the forging of membership as a covenant relationship that's now established between us as God's covenant people. And so there are all these parallels. And so this word covenant is the word the Bible uses to describe this kind of relationship. What's amazing is, is it's the word the Bible uses to describe the way God is related to us. That he has bound himself to us. He has wedded himself to us in covenant relationship with him. And so, for example, in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham, and you might remember this passage, and he he holds a, a covenant ceremony with Abraham. If you remember, he tells Abraham, take some animals and slaughter them and cut them in two and lay them on either side and create a pathway in between the animals. And, and this was a typical, you know, this was something that would happen in that day and time all the time when people were entering into a covenant with one another. They would dismember animals and line them up with a pathway in between and then each party who was making promises and vows would walk through the pieces. And in essence, what they were doing is they were saying, if I don't hold to my end of this covenant, may it be done to me the way it, is done, it has been done to these animals. And God says to Abraham, you and I are going to enter into a covenant, and I want you to slice the you know, animals in two and create this pathway. And God enters into covenant with Abraham. It's just absolutely amazing that God would condescend to enter into a relationship with us like this. And then again, in Exodus 19 and 20, God makes a covenant with his people Israel. He will be their God. He will love and bless them and defend them and provide for them, they will be his people. They will live faithfully and obediently before him. And so this idea of covenant is everywhere in the Old Testament, that God has come to his people and made covenant with them. Now, the old and the new that are being contrasted here then, because see, that's what's taking place here in Hebrews chapter 8, is Hebrews chapter 8 is saying the, the old way of God covenanting with his people is being replaced by something new, this new covenant he's doing that Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah 31, that God was going to come and he was going to replace the old way of relating to his people, the old covenant, the law, and all of the ritual circumcision and the, the tabernacle and all kind of the, all of that stuff with a new covenant that was going to be something entirely different. And that's what's happening here, is 
Hebrews is picking up on Jeremiah 31 saying, there is a new and better covenant that has come. And the reason that this covenant is a new and a better covenant is because it's founded upon new and better promises. Okay? So let's keep going. This is the argument the Hebrews writer is making. That God would establish a new covenant because, in some sense, you see there in verse 7 and 8, in some sense, the old covenant was incomplete and inferior. Now, be careful. Not flawed. Not bad. Incomplete and inferior. And it was incomplete and inferior to this new covenant that God is now making with his people because its promises were inferior. And there are really two ways that the writer of Hebrews goes after this idea of the promises of the old covenant being incomplete and inferior. He says, number one, that it did not finally deal with sin. And that secondly, it did not come inside and change the heart. In other words, the promises of the old covenant, the law given to Moses and the people, and you know all that God was doing throughout the, the story of the Old Testament to lead and guide his people and to save them, there was something about his relating to them in that way that was both temporary and external. Whereas the new covenant promises are eternal, they're once for all, they're forever, and they're perpetual, and they're internal, they come inside. So let me show you this from this passage, okay? First, the promises in the old covenant were inferior because they were temporary, okay? The old covenant didn't deal ultimately and finally with sin, and we see this in what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 7.27. So look at verse 27 there. He says, the priests had to come day after day after day and make sacrifices for themselves and for all the people. And the point he's making is just as he's saying, you know, the fact that they had to keep coming back day and then the next day and then the next day and then the day after forever and ever, the fact that there was this repetitive nature of these sacrifices meant that the sacrifices themselves couldn't take away the sin of the people because they had to keep coming back. They, they don't finally and ultimately deal with sin. That's what he's arguing there because they had to keep coming back. They had to keep day after day after day. And so what he's saying is, is that religion, okay, he's contrasting religion with the gospel here. And he's saying religion, what it does is, is it creates this roller coaster experience where good day, bad day scenario, where dependent upon whether, you know, it's been a good day, you've had a quiet time, you've shared your faith with somebody, everything's going well, you feel pretty good about yourself. And then on a bad day when you get up late and you don't have time to pray and you hardly talk to God all day and then things just go from bad to worse and you end up in spiritual depression because religion creates this day-to-day experience of highs and lows and this roller coaster ride, uh, and, and that's the problem. There's no, there's no constancy. There's, there's no finality about it. They have to keep coming day after day. But look what God says in how he contrasts the new with the old. Look what he says about the new covenant in verse 12. He says, but this is the covenant that I'm going to make now. See, this is how this covenant that I'm going to make now is going to be different. He says in verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Do you hear the finality of that statement? Right? I'm going to do something that will be once for all forever, and sin will finally be dealt with once for all and forever, and from that day forward, I will remember their sins no more. Yeah, that is hallelujah. I mean, right? So you could say it this way. In the old covenant, God sees our sins 
And because there's this religious principle in place, he sees our sins and he turns his face away from us. I mean, that, that's, really, that's really kind of what's going on there in verse 9. They did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them. So in the old covenant, because, because there's this, this, still this, this kind of religious principle that's getting worked out, in the old covenant, God sees our sin and turns his face away from us. But the promise there in verse 12 is that in the new covenant, God sees us and he turns his face away from our sins. So the promises of the Old Covenant were inferior because they were temporary. They didn't ultimately and finally deal with sin, but God says, I'm coming. And in the new thing I'm doing, I'm going to do that. But then secondly, the promises of the Old Covenant were inferior because they were external. They, were, they didn't come inside. And you see, the law, the law was powerless to come inside and change the heart. The law could point the way towards obedience, but it could not produce energy for obedience in the hearts of the people it was given to. That's what Paul's saying there in Romans 8, right? The law is powerless. God has done what the law is powerless to do. The, the problem with the law is that it stayed on the, on the outside. It was external. It didn't come in to help people. You know, it didn't come in. It couldn't change the heart. It didn't come in and help people deal with their consciences on a deep level. So, again, this, this experience of religion doesn't ultimately satisfy the conscience. There's something about believing that doing good things makes you right with God that, you know, you know all of us that no matter how hard we work and how hard we try, that at the end of all of our striving, we still have not done enough. We may have obeyed all of God's commands the way the rich young ruler did, but, we did, but are we patient and are we kind and are we joyful in the doing of those things? And so religion creates this experience where I work hard and I push forward, but in all of my pushing and in all of my striving, I still am not, at the end of the day, my conscience is not satisfied. Because the law can't come in. It can't come in and change the heart. It can't come in and deal with my guilt. But look at what God says about the new covenant here. This is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make. I will put my law in their mind, and I will write it on their hearts. See, in the new covenant, the law doesn't remain external. It comes inside. It gets, it's not just written on tablets of stone. God says he's going to write it on the heart. And so the teaching is that the gospel, as opposed to the law, brings a new power, a new inner heart dynamic for obedience. See, the promises of the old covenant were inferior because they were temporary, right? The sacrificial provisions of the law didn't ultimately and finally deal with sin. The promises were temporary and they were external. The law couldn't produce the kind of heart change we so desperately need. It couldn't cleanse the guilty conscience. And so in the old covenant, there was gospel and religion. You need to know that. But the gospel was more of a whisper. It was the anticipation of something more that was coming. It was there, but the main flavor of the Old Covenant was religion. Or I thought, you know, the way you could say it, the aftertaste. There was a religious aftertaste to the Old Covenant. And so you see how this gets worked out here. In verse 9, God says, For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no mercy or no concern for them, declares the Lord. See, that's religion. They did not keep their end of the deal, and so I turned my back on them. You see, religion says, you follow the rules, and God will bless you. You break the rules, and God will get you. Religion is obey God, and he'll turn his face towards you. But disobey him, and he'll turn his face away from you. And that's what God's saying is, they disobeyed, and I turned my face away from So there's still this religious principle that's operative in the old covenant and the promises of the old covenant. Obey God, he will turn his face towards you. Disobey God, he'll turn his face away from you. And what's happening is, is 
um, the, the, the Israelites were guilty of taking their, their religion and turning it into something that was very similar to the Canaanite religions of the day. And the Canaanite religions of the day that were alongside of Yahweh and his people and what God was doing in grace to save them, the, the Canaanite religions were something like this. They would, you know, you'd, say, you'd say to God, God, whoever the God was, I will, I will serve you. You know, I will do the things you ask for me to do, and as payment for what I've done, then I expect you to bless me or to bring the rain or to do whatever you needed or to, you know, to give me children or to do whatever you, know, that you needed the God to do for you. So you won the God's approval and favor through obeying and doing the things that he expected you to do. See, so, so there's this religious principle that, that still gets, you know, kind of working itself out among God's people. But see, the covenant God made with Abraham was not religious. I mean, this, the covenant that God made there in Genesis 15 with Abraham was not religious because he lines out the pieces, and typically what would happen is each party that was making the covenant would walk through the pieces, and so each one of them is signifying, okay, it's my turn. If I, if I disobey or if I fail to meet the requirements of the covenant we're making, may it be done to me as it's done to these animals. But there in Genesis 15, if you look, God makes this covenant with Abraham. He lines the pieces out, but Abraham never walks through the pieces. Only God does. You see, it's the way of saying Abraham, God walks through the pieces. Abraham, if I don't uphold my end of the covenant I now make with you, may I be killed. But Abraham, if you don't keep the promises that you make, may I be killed. See, there's, I mean, the law was grace. God is saving his people in grace. But what the people did is they turned it into a system of legalistic righteousness. And so what God has done in the gospel is to destroy this religious impulse in his people. And yet... What Hebrews is warning of is he's saying, don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old and the inferior. Don't go back under the law. Because it's possible even inside of Christianity to drift back into religion. And, and the Hebrews writer is saying, don't do that. You're trading the new and the better for the old and inferior. You might as well trade in your BMW for a horse and buggy. Right? You might as well trade in your iPhone for a beeper. That's what he's saying. He said, don't do that. Don't go back. Don't do that. And so what we've got to realize, what we've got to come to really make sense of is, is all of the different ways that we are prone to kind of grabbing onto this religious impulse and turning our Christianity into something that's not Christianity, that's something altogether different, that's something other than salvation by grace. Living inside the construct of Christianity, which is salvation by grace, but then somehow inside of that thing, turning it back into some, somehow we begin to earn our salvation. You've got to understand a couple of things. We're very susceptible to this uh, because of the culture that we live in and what is now people, and Tim Rice, my, my friend in Lakeland, even talked about this in our meeting on Wednesday. He said, you know, we are living in the middle of what people are calling the, the um, meritocracy of America. It's a big word. But meritocracy versus aristocracy, you know, in previous generations, we believed in aristocracy, which is certain people because of their bloodline are just inferior to other people. But in America, we've completely thrown that out and we are a meritocracy. We love, we love um, Rudy. Rudy Rudiger. Do you know who I'm talking about? Right? 
we watched that movie in my house a couple weeks ago, and I, I cry every time. You know, I just like, oh, man. Do you know who I'm talking about? Rudy Rudiger, the guy who walked on at Notre Dame and was a little guy, like five foot five, and, you know, all these big hulking giants and just took a beating for four years but kept going and never gave up and, and just worked hard every day and showed up and did everything he had to do. And at the end, you know, of the movie, he gets to go, he gets to dress for the final game and he gets to go in on the final play and he makes a tackle and they carry him off the field on their shoulders. We love that stuff. Right? I mean, this is a part of our cultural DNA. We love stories of people who, through sheer determination and hard work, overcome the limitations of their circumstances and achieve what seemed impossible. We love it as Americans. It's a part of our cultural DNA, but it translates into spiritual ideas. And if you were to have a conversation with people and I encourage you to do this, who are not a part of the church, who are just in our culture but not really, don't really have anything to do with Christianity, here's the way the conversation will typically go. Either you'll talk with people and you'll say, you know, well, what do you think about Christianity? Are you a Christian? Oh, yeah. And they'll say one of two things. Either they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I, I consider myself a pretty good person. And therefore, you know, I think God, they're pretty confident that God loves and accepts them because they're good. Or, and this is how it would go in the fraternity house when I was in the fraternity, um, the guys would get drunk, and in these drunken moments, they would have these existential moments of absolute honesty and clarity, and it was just amazing, right? It took a lot of alcohol a lot of the time. And this is why I was there, and I didn't drink, because I wanted to be ready for those moments, you know, and I realized they probably won't remember these things we're talking about anyway tomorrow. But you get an insight into these guys, and, and, and what would happen is, is it would be, you know, you would come across people either who know, think they're pretty good and are pretty confident God loves them and accepts them, or you know, people who are outside of Christianity who just know they're bad. And they're just, they just convinced God hates them. Right? And that's the generic spirituality of our culture. God loves good people. God hates bad people. Uh, but if you're not care- see, if we're not careful, this stuff gets brought into the church. So, you know, the old EE question or the old, you know, faith evangelism question uh, you know, what, when you stand before God on the day of judgment, and you ask Christians even this question, you know, if you stand before God on the day of judgment, and he asks, why should I let you into my heavenly, you know, city or whatever, you know, what are you going to say? And you still, if you're not careful, what you do is you, if you listen carefully to what people say, they will say things like that, like, well, Lord, you know, I, 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 I did this, and, you know, I Lord, did we not? Lord, did I not? And Jesus has some very strong things to say in Matthew 7 about people who stand before God on the day of judgment and say, Lord, did we not? Because the answer on the day of judgment, the Christian answer, the answer that reflects an understanding of salvation by grace is, why should I let you into my heavenly city? Lord, did you not? Lord, did you not go to the cross? Right? And so you can see all these ways that this moralism is kind of trickling in. I told you I was reading a book by Martin Luther on the bondage of the will, and Luther is concerned about what he would call a theological moralism. And Martin Luther said, be careful that you don't make salvation. God does 99%, and then at the very end, we've got to come in and we've got to add that 1% to the 99% that God has done. So is faith, at the end of the day, is faith in Jesus Christ, is that something God does or is that something you do? Because if, it's some, if God does 99% and then the part that you've got to do is to add faith to what God has already done right at the end, then you've turned Christianity into moralism. 
Salvation must be grace from beginning to end. And so I'm going to ask, is the emphasis in your life on who you are and what you do, or is it on what Jesus has done and who Jesus is? See, that's the question. Christianity is not another religion. It signals the end of religion. Christianity is the anti-religion. And so how do we stop? How do we stop going back into religion? How do we rest in the truth that salvation is by grace alone? And the answer is the third part here of what we've got to do this morning. We have to see that we have a mediator. You see that we have a true and better covenant, a true and better promises, uh, established by a true and better mediator. We have a mediator, a go-between. And when two opposing parties are having a hard time coming to an agreement about some kind of issue, they often will call a mediator in to help them reconcile. And this is, this is what we see here. This is, this is the, the metaphor that's being used here. So, for example, a professional baseball player, after his first five years in, in, or three years in the major leagues or whatever it is, becomes what the terminology in the trade is arbitration eligible. And that means that he gets to say to his team, the professional baseball player gets to say, you know, I think I'm worth $5 million. And if the team agrees to pay him the $5 million, then they pay him the $5 million and they move on. But their business is too. And so typically what happens is something like this. The player says, well, you know, I think I'm worth $5 million. And the team says, that's great. We think you're worth $1 million. And when, the two, when there's a disagreement, when the player and his agent thinks, okay, I'm worth $5 million, and the team thinks he's worth $1 million, and neither side's willing to budge, so how do you come to an agreement and get a contract signed? What do you do? You bring in a mediator. And the perp- the, so both people call in the mediator, a third party, and they agree, whatever this person says and whatever he does, we're both going to abide by what he does. And so it's the job of the mediator to bring about reconciliation between the player and his agent and the team. Right? We need a spiritual mediator. There's a, you know, go back to the old four spiritual laws. There's a huge gap between us and God. God is holy and just, and we are sinful and corrupt, and we therefore are separated from him because of our rebellion and sin. And so we, we need a mediator. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that by nature we are children of wrath. That is that there's enmity between us and God. We're opposed to one another, and we need to be reconciled. So how do you bridge the gap? How do you get reconciled? You know, how do we get reconciled with God? We can't do it on our own. Uh, We do not possess the strength to leap from one side to the other. And there are no amount of good works that can bridge the gap. There's no amount of religious commitment that will bridge the gap. There's no amount of regret or repentance or good intentions or religious ceremony that will bridge the gap. The only hope we have in bridging the gap is that there's a mediator. And look at what he has done. What we're told here in in these verses in Hebrews 8 is about this mediator that can be ours by faith. And we're told two things about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as our great high priest in verse 1 there. The point of all he said to to this point is that we have a mediator who is able to reconcile us to God because, look there in verse 1, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There are two things. Two things and then I'm done. First... He is seated. Now that would have sounded odd to Jewish ears because priests don't minister by being seated. So what's he see? Priests stand to minister, but this priest is seated. So what's, what's he saying? And what the Hebrews writer is saying is Jesus has finished his work and he sat down. His work's done. Unlike the other priests who have to go back day after day to make sacrifices for themselves and the people, look there in verse 27, Jesus did this once for all in offering his own body up as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross 
So he doesn't have to go back day after day. There's a once-for-all dynamic in the gospel. That God has ultimately and finally dealt with our sins in Jesus Christ. And so if your faith and trust are in him, then God's disposition towards you is settled and it doesn't change once for all. See, religion is obey God and God will turn his face towards you. Disobey God, he'll turn his face away from you. But Jesus obeyed. He obeyed perfectly and yet on the cross, God turned his face away from him. And that's why God can can see you and turn his face away from your sins. Because on the cross, he saw your sins on Jesus and he turned his face away from Jesus. And so the application is is we don't have to keep going back. See, the gospel destroys this this sense of this performance treadmill, this up and down experience of the Christian life. We don't have to keep going back. It's been settled once for all. He's seated. You see that? But then secondly, he's not only seated, but he's seated at the right hand of majesty in heaven, the place of power and authority in the universe. So systematic theologians and Bible scholars agree that the the consequence of Jesus' ascension is that from heaven he now can send the Holy Spirit into our hearts. This is how the the law gets written upon our hearts. And it's also how your life can begin to be renovated from the inside out because Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father. The consequence now is that he sent the Spirit into our hearts. And so look back at Ezekiel 36. What does he say? I'll give you... A new, I'll sprinkle you with clean water. In other words, I'll come inside and I'll clear your conscience. I'll give you a new heart. I'll take the heart of stone out. I'll put a heart of flesh in. I'll give you the spirit that will move you to obey my decrees, he says. So see, the, the application is, is that the gospel is a new dynamic for obedience. Don't, don't do this. Don't come down to chapter, thir- to chapter uh, 8, verse 13, where it talks about the old covenant being obsolete And think that means that Christianity makes obedience optional. No, the gospel doesn't make obedience optional. The gospel makes obedience possible. Right? And that's what Romans 8 means. And so, I want to ask a question then as we end. How do you know then, if you're living in the freedom of the new covenant, or if you're still under obligation to the old? To help you, how do you know if you how do you know if you've drifted off of the gospel into back into religion? There there are three things. Just I'm just gonna I'm not gonna really go into them much, but I just want to read them and kind of move on. The first is the first kind of way you can diagnose your own heart in this is is the gospel produces intimacy, and religion produces formality. Do you see there what Hebrews says in chapter eight verse eleven? They shall not teach each other his neighbor. And each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me. That word know means much more than intellectual cognition. It means to be intimate with. In, intimacy, in religion, there's no intimacy with God. There's a certain amount of distance and formality. But in the gospel, there's intimacy. Communion. But secondly, how do you know if you slid back into religion? First, religion is formality. The gospel produces intimacy. But secondly... The gospel produces equality, and religion creates classism or exclusion. Look at what he says there in verse 11, For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And that's important, and it's a a new thought. But what, what the gospel does is the gospel, because the gospel of grace puts us all on the same footing. And because we're all on the same footing, there's no excluding of people because of who they are, or how old they are, or how much money they have or don't have, or what color their skin is, or whatever it might be. The gospel produces this ability to include all kinds of people. So the gospel produces equality. Religion produces exclusion. But then thirdly, how do you know? How do you know if you've slid? 
back into religion. Well, the gospel produces community. And religion produces individualism. Verse 10, I will be their God and they shall be my people. People, not persons. People. The way you know you're a part of the new covenant, not drifting back into the old, is that you have a new desire and commitment to community. You have a new approach to relationships because of grace. Right? That is, you don't relate to people in your life. You don't do this. You don't relate to people by saying, well, you know, as long as you're meeting my needs, then I'll meet your needs. No, that's religion. Religion is, I do this, and then you pay me back with this, right? Religion is, you do your part first, I will respond accordingly. But the new covenant creates covenantal people who look around them and they say things like this. to say, you know, these people are a mess. But I'm going to be true to them. I'm going to be faithful to them no matter how they treat me. I'm going to love them irrespective of their love for me. I'm going to meet their needs even if none of mine get met because that's the way that God has loved me in Jesus Christ. Those are just three things, right? We could do a million more. Are you building your life on God's grace? The Hebrews writer wants us to be very careful to search our hearts. And so do that as we prepare to come to this table this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. For how gracious you have been to us in showing us uh, a new covenant and bringing to us a new covenant that uh, does not keep us on this never-ending cycle of performance-based religion, but finally and ultimately deals with our sins. It does not stay on the outside, but comes in and deals with our hearts and gives us the new heart we need to obey and can clean our conscience. We are overwhelmed. And we marvel at your goodness to us in that. And so, come now as we celebrate this meal together and confirm the truth of salvation by grace to us. Help us to come and eat so that we might rest in you. Help us to strive to not strive. To work to not work. So that we might hold fast to our confession to the end, which is what Hebrews has been imploring us to do for so many weeks now. May, may you be our joy and our delight May all of our trust and hope be in you this morning. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. A part of the better promises that God has given us in the new covenant, the better covenant, is the promise of this benediction. Uh, the presence and power of God to go with you, uh, to bless you, to make his face to shine on you and all of the things that I say uh, as you leave this place. So receive it by faith, take it into your heart, uh, and as you go, uh, go with his peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.